If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is the author and documentary filmmaker Katrin Clay. Her latest book, which was published earlier this autumn, is The Good Germans which explores resistance to Nazism through the lives of six individuals who stood up to the Third Reich. She spoke to our editor, Rob Attar. Katrine, your book contends that there was more German resistance to Nazism than we might think. Why do you believe that people don't know these stories as well as they should? Well, look, um, after the war, clearly the history was written by the winners, if you like to put it that way, the Allies. Uh, And I suppose, um, for example, they didn't really want loads of um, heroes of the war having been German communists and socialists because the name of the game after the war was absolutely to be anti-communist. You know, the whole whole goalpost had changed by then. Uh, And I think, you know, the huge amounts of resistance, massive actually, from communists and socialists throughout the lead up to the war from 33 upwards uh, onwards, um, you know, really um, that was discounted. So what we were left with, which was also perfectly valid, was sort of what you might call Prussian aristocrats. That was, you know, July the 20th plot, which of course is absolutely massive. And one of my stories, one of my six stories is about that. Um, So we didn't have any of the communists and the socialists, uh, which is hundreds of thousands, quite honestly. And also, we never heard, by definition, about all the unknown people. And one of my stories is of a very, very ordinary boy. He's 12. He's called Bernd Engelmann. He's an only child of Herr and Frau Engelmann, you know, in an ordinary part of Dusseldorf, suburban Dusseldorf, and it's a family that decided to resist. And they joined up with um, a baker and his wife on the corner, a pastor, um, a teacher, you, you know, a few people. And from 33 onwards, they resisted. They helped people out. And by by helping out... I don't just mean Jews, which they certainly did, uh, but also uh, people who were being chased by this absolutely brutal terror regime. I mean, people have no idea in this country what it is like to live under that kind of a terror regime. So there they were, completely unknown people. There's hundreds and thousands of them. Um, You know, there they were helping. And the reason uh, we can look at it in a general way not a specific way, in a general way, is that you you have to remember two-thirds of Germans never did vote for the Nazis. Two-thirds. You see, that is a huge amount of people who were then subjected to the most appalling terror regime and 
the war, which they didn't want, but was always the plan, always Hitler's plan. Um, So you've already alluded to a couple of people, but your book follows six specific individuals who resisted Nazi Germany. As you said, there were hundreds of thousands of possibilities. How did you go about selecting these six? (laughs) Well, it's a good question that, uh, I mean, um, and why six, you know? Uh, The first reason for six is I thought in a book, uh, you want to follow stories fairly easily. And I thought six, and that means their families as well. Um, Six was a manageable number. Within that, I needed to try and get a sort of a cross-section. So there is one Prussian aristocrat. There is a communist. Um, There is the ordinary Bernd Engelmann family, uh, you know. Um, There is an absolutely top uh, social democrat. And there is a writer, Hans Fallader, the the famous um, author, so, you know, so there's young, there's old, there's um, men and women, uh, upper class, lower class. You know, I tried to get a cross section. And the reason I found them is because for my working life, before I started writing books, um, I worked at the BBC making documentaries, history documentaries. So I have been working on this subject for about 20 years because my mother was Swiss, so I speak well, Schweizerdeutsch, the Germans think it's very funny because <laughs> it's a sort of yokel German, but I can speak German and I can read it. And I knew where to look for these stories. That was the whole point. And that's why I wrote the book. No, actually, come to think of it, the reason I really wrote the book, well, I grew up with my my dad, obviously, who um, was in the war five years in the Royal Navy. And he had the view... Uh, as I was growing up, that there were no good Germans. There just weren't. He, he had this new, and b- by the way, he was very typical of his generation. Uh, and what they, their view was there was something kind of, there was a kind of Teutonic flaw. And these Germans, you know, un, un, instead of thinking, well, maybe there's an element of possibility in any country, you know, God knows, look around the world now and you see it. Um, you know, he had this view. And as I was growing older, I started thinking, well, hold on a moment. Um, Nazis are one thing. Germans are another, surely. You know, that was just a general thought I had, you know. I'd spent some time in Germany between school and university, and I'd met perfectly normal, nice people. I thought, well, that wasn't a Nazi. And then I had met another one. I thought, oh, that can't have been a Nazi. And I began to realize there was this distinction. And much later on, I came across this extraordinary fact um, which is recorded all over the place, actually, but never made an awful lot of that two-thirds, two-thirds of Germans never did vote for the Nazis. But they had to put up with Because, you know, once a regime like that gets going, you have had it, you know. There's nothing you can do because, uh, you know, the terror is massive and fear is a very, very powerful uh, tool. So as you've suggested, your six people come from very different class backgrounds, different ages different genders. But other than their opposition to Nazism, are there any other commonalities? Oh, that's a, an unexpected question. Yes, I think what it is that there weren't, but thrown together sometimes um, through the circumstances, they found they had an awful lot in common they did not know before. For example, one of my people, um, he's a, a law student. He's called Fabian. 
And he's a law student in Berlin at the beginning of my story. And I do start in 1932 in order to have a lead up to the, the great Machtergreifung, which means the seizing of power by the Nazis. And there he is uh, wandering along in Berlin uh, as soon as the Nazis come to power. And he's still a student. Um, and he is looking for a man called Ernst Nikisch. And Ernst Nikisch was a, a, a journalist. And the only reason he knew about him was because he used to run a, um, a magazine called Widerstand, which means resistance. And Nikisch was uh, sort of what you might call a proto-communist. Um, and he went to find him because he was thinking, I must find people like-minded, regardless where they come from, uh, and work together with them. And he literally doorstepped him. He went along and he banged on his door. And this chap, you know, stocky, tough little guy, opens the door and finds a rather elegant-looking, uh, you know, Prussian kind of uh, type of young man there saying, uh, are you Ernst Nikisch? I want to come in and talk to you. And in they go. And later on, when Fabian is having to hide one of his mates, who's also, on this occasion, a very aristocratic, older Prussian, who is terrifically active in resistance and has been to England to beg for uh, Churchill and all sorts um, to intervene because they know they can't defeat the Nazis on their own. Uh, as we know, it was in vain, but never mind. Uh, that's a different point. He uh, He's called Kleist Schmenzing. And Kleist Schmenzing has to do a runner at one point because the local Nazis where he lives are after him. And uh, his wife uh, manages to ring up Fabian and say, look, can you help? What can you do? Where can you put him? Can you, can you? And Kleist Schmenzing is by now going into all sorts of little local trains, hopping from one to another, uh, you know, the stories are amazing, of course, you know, <laughs> like a thriller, really, uh, to get to Berlin. And by the time he arrives in Berlin, Fabian has asked Ernst Nikisch, who, uh, you know, is basically communist, where, will you put him up? And he does. And they become the firmest of friends, this <laughs> Prussian aristocrat and this communist, because they have this one massively important thing in common. They are going to try and resist and work, well, in the end, kill Hitler, basically. So they all oppose Nazism, obviously, but did they all have different reasons for that opposition? I mean, you've already suggested that some maybe came for political reasons, for being communist. Why did they all want to resist Nazism? Well, if you, uh, you and I, let's say, were living in, in uh, the first year of uh, the Nazi terror regime, uh, believe you me, we'd find plenty in common with everyone else, nearly everyone else, because it was terrifying. You have to think that in the first six months, first six months, uh, you know, of uh, 1933, as soon as they came to power, the Nazis, in they went with their brutality. There was no more free press, uh, no more free trade unions. Uh, if you didn't agree with uh, and be seen to be agreeing with their political views, you lost your job. Uh, you know, you try, you, you figure, I don't know whether you've got any kids, but we've got children and grandchildren. Next thing you know, uh, you know, you, you're being had up because, you know, you're seen as, uh, as in opposition because you didn't give the Hitler salute with uh, terrific zeal or a neighbor has denounced you. Denun denunciations went up like mad immediately. And you have to bear in mind uh, what it must have been like to try and live in that society. I mean, you lived, honestly, 
you lived with fear. And that is leaving out the fact that, uh, you know, there were concentration camps were set up so quickly. At the beginning, they had to use private outfits because they, were, they, weren't, they hadn't built enough of them yet. Uh, and, you know, after the Reichstag's fire, which is the famous event, you know, when the Reichstag went up in flames, which they blamed the communists for, uh, they, um, they immediately used it in order to arrest 10,000 communists. And they did. Uh, and very, very soon after that, they, uh, they arrested the leader of the German communists, who is Ernst Thälmann. And his daughter, Irma, is one of my six stories. And she had, she was at that point, um, what was she, 13, I think, and her father was arrested. And he was then kept in isolation, if you can imagine this, for 11 and a half years. The reason they didn't bump him off like they did most people is because they knew there'd be such an outcry. And they needed the communists to, to work in the, in the factories and things, you know. <laughs> so they couldn't do it. Uh, so they kept him in isolation for 11 and a half years. And at the last minute, just before the Russians came in at the end of the war, then they executed him. And the story of Irma is of a daughter who, uh, it's interesting, really. She was an only child of Rosa and Ernst Tillmann, both of them terrifically active communists, obviously. And she was just the image of her father. And she never, ever bowed down to anything. You know, she just fought and fought and fought from, from, from early on. And we watch her sort of going occasionally. Suddenly you'd be allowed a visit. So you watch her going to see her father. You watch her developing her ideas. You watch her resisting, joining other groups. You know, you, 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 you watch all that going on uh, in, in her circle. As you say, some of the uh, figures here are from fairly distinguished backgrounds, as famously yes. was uh, Klaus von Stauffenberg. Did that offer yes. any extra cover for anti-Nazi behaviour? No, I think the only cover... Uh, the, I mean, the, there was this famous phrase used all the time that they had to wear a mask. You know, they had to look as though they were keen Nazis, basically. And that made a big problem after the war, obviously, because the Allies, you know, didn't always know who had been wearing a mask and who didn't and so on and so forth. Um, but actually, um, another of my characters who was involved in the July 20th plot, uh, he's called Fritzi von Schulenburg, um, and he, you know, he found, he did what a lot of people did, is he went into the army. Because one of the few, there were two reasons, actually. One was that that was the best cover you could find. And the other was it was the only way they eventually realised, given that they were given no support from the French, no support from, from the British, apart from Churchill, all, all the appeasers uh, weren't going to join in uh, before the war, is when they were trying to stop all this. So they realised the only way they could win this thing was to assassinate Hitler. And the only way they could do that uh, was to be in the army, basically. But it was terribly difficult because contrary to uh, what appeared to be so on the newsreels, uh, talk about fake news, uh, Josef Goebbels was into fake news long, long before <laughs> anyone else and was brilliant at it. And he would do these newsreels of the great Führer, um, you know, meeting the people or going to the front and so on. Well, Hitler hardly went anywhere 
at all, increasingly. Increasingly, he was behind a three-tiered SS security, three rings of security around him, either at Berchtesgaden, which is up in the Austrian Alps, as you know, so no one could get, get him there, uh, or at the Eastern Front in his wolf's lair, which again had, you know, all those, <laughs> all those rings of security. And Stauffenberg, who did eventually try, as we know, the famous July plot, 1944, uh, he only managed to get in through the three rings because people thought they believed he was, you know, he was in the army and, and, and he was, uh, you know, he'd been very badly wounded in North Africa. Uh, he was a hero, a war hero. Uh, so he was trusted enough to go in and he, and he went um, with his adjutant, uh, von Heften, who was another terribly courageous young man, and then they went with briefcases and, and 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 bomb inside, you know. So that was the way they managed to hide themselves: was either by wearing a mask within, you know, uh, the civil service, um, or in the army. So that is obviously one of the more high-profile methods of resistance. But what were some of the more ordinary ways that people resisted Nazism? Well, then you go to my story, which I start the book with, which is Bernd Engelmann, uh, you know, this 12-year-old boy who does all the messaging for his group in Dusseldorf on his bicycle, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, this is an interesting thing because they get going straight away, um, the, the baker, his wife, the pastor. You know, these are people who had no names at all. Um, you know, they, they're totally unknown. Um, and um, they, they get going straight away, getting people across the border because Dusseldorf wasn't that far away from the border. And one of the people um, he particularly disliked, Bernd Engelmann, this schoolboy, was um, Herr Fisch. And Herr Fisch was a member of the SS and he was his father's tailor. Um, and one day, Tante Ney, as, he, as, as the baker's wife was called, Aunt, Aunt Ney, told him to go uh, and see Herr Fish. And uh, Bernd thought, oh, well, what do I want to do that for? You know, I hate him. He called him Fishface. So anyway, off he went. And Herr, Herr Fish opened the door to him um, and took him into the back room um, of his tailor shop, which was terribly smart, and did these dress uniforms for the SS. And there in the back room, hidden, was Ruth Wolf, who was the daughter of some a, a very small tailor, uh, Jewish, uh, a schoolgirl, and he was getting her out. It was the start of getting, um, you know, young children out. And he realized afterwards that Fishface was actually a Quaker. And he had hidden himself uh, under this terrific facade of the SS. And this lot were never, ever found out because they were totally unknown. And there were thousands like that around Germany. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And when he came back, he said, I can't do it. I just cannot leave Germany. If I leave Germany, I won't be able to write. And if I don't write, I will go mad. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. 
Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So considering the Nazis maintain their grip on power right until the end and were able to yes. commit some horrendous acts of brutality, how much impact did these resistors actually have? Ah, uh, well, uh, I, I think you'd have to go back to um, sort of places, things like 1937, 1938, when uh, a lot of the top ones um like Fabian, who I mentioned earlier, by now older, obviously, done his law degree, uh, go to England and uh, beg intervention from uh, the British and say, look, apart from anything else, if you don't intervene, there will be war. I mean, just read Mein Kampf. He wrote it back in 1923 or whatever it was, 24. And he's already saying it has to be war, you know, to have Lebensraum, room for expansion and, and his racial policies and all that. He said, they, so they were begging for that, uh, and and it didn't happen. And the net result of that was that there was very little they could do, really and truly, on their own. All they could do was help people out, rescue people, and try and avoid ending up in a concentration camp themselves. Um, you know that 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 was as much as they could do, and inexorably. Um, the Nazis took Germany to war, uh, and, and what, what are you going to do? You know, you you can't suddenly say, "Well, um, I'm not going to I'm not going to go." They say, "Oh, fine. If you're not going to go, you can go into um, Dachau concentration camp instead." You know, off you go. Actually, I tell you, uh, Rob, if people who have not lived under a terror dictatorship, and goodness knows there are a lot around at the moment in the world, but if you haven't, you have no idea what this. The tool, the political tool of fear, uh, which is just brutality, basically, you know, just shoot them on the spot. Or the great phrase was shoot someone whilst trying to escape. They were trying to escape, so you had to shoot them, you know, all that stuff. Well, I mean, you've no idea how powerful that is. And if, if there's one thing I would quite like people to feel, should they care to read this book and get to the end of it, uh, is, well, actually, what would I have done? Because it took massive courage um, to resist, you know. And incidentally, if I can just give you one example, uh, if you're interested in in, in an example in, in my, uh, my... The idea of the book, at any rate, let's say, is to look at big history 
from a very small point of view. You know, just from one individual's point of view, look at the big events. And the first really, really big event that concerned the resistors was in March 1936. March 1936, Hitler decided to take the biggest gamble of his life. Uh, And this was actually discussed in detail at the Nuremberg trials, um, you know, late after the war, after all the disaster. Uh, and, and it was proved that this is exactly what happened. He took a gamble. He, had, he was in no way ready for war um, at that point, which is 1936, no way ready. But what he decided to do was try it out and, and retake that bit of the Rhineland that, that had been taken away from Germany by the Versailles Treaty. And of course, there are an awful lot of people in Germany who, who even our resistors, who resented the, the terms of the Versailles Treaty, you know. Anyway, so you can do it like that and you can talk about it like a big history event, but I, actually I don't. I do it with Bernd Engelmann, uh, who is this 12-year-old schoolboy, um, who is alerted by the, the underground network local to Dusseldorf, um, that they need people uh, at the Rhine bridges to go and check out whether this is really happening because they just can't believe it's going to happen. So uh, you see a band getting, uh, creeping out of his uh, flat, hopping on his bike, going off to the Orberkastler Bridge um, and standing there. And uh, there are a few people there who've obviously heard it's possible as well, not many. And he's standing there and then he hears, he hears you know, the, that terrible sound of boots marching. And sure enough, they come. And they take it. And there is no outcry, not from France and not from Britain, you know. So that is, you know, if you're a German, if you're the baker and his wife, you go, geez, what, 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 what do we do now, you know? And so for, for these resistors, what kind of risks were they taking by undertaking these activities? Well, I mean, um, life, really frankly, uh, because if they're caught, uh, it's straight into a concentration camp um, or or they're executed, of course. You know, guillotines, it was, they, they were quite keen on guillotining in the early days. You know, that was it. Um, and, and they knew it. You know, everyone knew people who had just disappeared. Uh, the Engelmans were at a, at a sort of a New Year's party, again, very early on, I think it was sort of 1935, I can't quite remember, but dead early on. And uh, they were, uh, you know, at a table uh, with some friends, and one of them was an old lawyer. And uh, he, and this is all he did, this is all he did, he said, because, um, you know, in the middle of all the festivities, up stood a Nazi and made a great speech, you know, and this intellectual, clever lawyer was muttered, didn't even speak loud and said, God, this is the kind of thing that's happening to us these days. And someone at another table heard it, reported it, um, and the next morning he was arrested. And he ended up immediately in a concentration camp, and within a few weeks news came through that he was dead. And these stories went everywhere, Rob, everywhere. So, you know, you have to make decisions all the time as to whether you're going to do very quiet little resistance or whether you're going to be out there, you know. And then here's another interesting story. This is Fritzi von der Schulenburg, who uh, is my, shall we call him, the Prussian aristocrat story. Uh, And he's wonderful. At the beginning, 
he believed in the Nazis because the Nazis, as you remember, they were called the National Socialists. And he believed that socialism was the solution now to the parlous state that Germany was in. I mean, a terrible state it was in because of all the stuff after the First World War, you know, and also the Wall Street crash. Uh, you know, it was just terrible. Unemployment, and starvation, all sorts. So he believed in it and he joined immediately the Nazi party. Um, and so my, the, his story in my book is of a man who gradually, over the next couple of years, realizes, first of all, he thought there were just a few bad apples, you know, his immediate boss, Koch, he thought, well, he's obviously absolutely corrupt. Uh, and then he realized it wasn't individuals, it was the system itself. He disengaged, but he never left the Nazi party because he knew if he did, they'd know something was up. So he had to carry on. Uh, and he and he just gradually, gradually gravitated towards um, actually Ludwig Beck, and uh, Girdler, who who were running a, a, a big resistance group, uh, and he and he joined them, you know, and uh, that that's that's how he started resisting. But first off, he believed it might you know it might be a good thing. One of the people that's in your book, perhaps the most well known person, is the author who's popularly known as Hans Velada, who wrote the book yes. Alone in Berlin. And I think what's yes. quite interesting about him is he did make some concessions to Nazism. So I wonder, first of all, if that's common among resistors and if that complicates the picture at all. Well, I think one of the things about history is that unless you go into the detail of people's lives, which are unique from you to me to anyone else, unless you go into the real detail of their lives, you'll never really understand what process they went through. And that was the reason I wanted... He was called Rudolf Ditzen. Hans Fallada, and he was already, um, you know, a best-selling author by this by 1932 when my story starts. Um, and uh, he's an incredibly imperfect man. I like the fact that he was really the, the furthest away from a saint that you can get. So he was a, a morphine addict. He was a drunk. He was a womanizer. He was he'd been in in a lunatics asylum. Uh, he'd killed someone in a duel when he was a student. I mean, he'd done everything, but. He was a great, great writer. And the detail you have to understand about his life by the time we meet him when he's uh, married to Suze, luckily a very good, strong woman, is that he was a writer through and through. He had a lot of, quite a lot of mental problems. And the only way he could survive in his own life, regardless of when he lived or where he lived, was writing. Uh, so a lot of writers... Um, who believed the same things he did, which was that the Nazis are a nightmare, they left. Thomas Mann, uh, all these people, they left as quickly as possible. And he tried to leave, I mean, psychologically, if you see what I mean. In fact, they even got to the point of packing everything and getting ready to go. And he said to his wife, a terrible moment in the story, really, um, uh, they're outside with, with the cart loaded up with all the furniture and everything, you know, all set to go with their kids. And he says to poor old Suze, uh, hold on a moment, I, I, I'm just going to go for a walk. I won't be long. And he went for this walk up the country lane. And when he came back, he said, I can't do it. I just cannot leave Germany. If I leave Germany, I won't be able to write. And if I don't write, I will go mad. And what he did in his books was brilliant because he resisted. I mean, he was a resister, you see, but uh, in a very 
small way, if you want to put it that way. He wrote always wonderfully popular, brilliantly written books, but they were about the small, decent man or woman trying to struggle their way through these terrible times. And he does it with such humour and such brilliance that, uh, you know, he, he reckoned that if he could reach the reader... Uh, that would be a way of doing it. However, he had to make fair amount of compromises on the way because the Nazis very quickly had their own cultural um, Reich, Reich thing, you know, where you had to fit in. And if you didn't, uh, they didn't. Actually, one of the clever things they did, they were very sort of basic and brutal, is they wouldn't give you any paper. Well, without paper, it's a bit tricky to write. So, you know, it was like that. There were obviously no tellies and no computers and no all that, no paper. So they, they could keep him in line, you know. So he spent his whole story in my book is about the most imperfect, imperfect of men making endless compromises, but somehow or other managing to get by, which he did. Now, these people who'd resisted the Nazis, how did that shape the ones who survived, how did that shape their post-war career when presumably this would have been a badge of pride? Ah, well, they, they, honestly, this story is so full of all these ironies. Here they are. They've been courageous, you know, beyond description, really. Um, uh, and if if they survived, and obviously um, two or three of mine don't survive, um, if I include Anne Tillman, um if they survived, they then had to survive um, the situation in post-war Germany. Uh, well, if you've seen any archive of Hamburg or Berlin, you know for a start what that was like. But then the people themselves, and particularly the one third, that other third, uh, who, were, who did vote for the Nazis, uh, I mean, they, they, they call them traitors. You know, they call them traitors. So instead of being greeted as great heroes, there's a whole load of people in Germany who I will call the Nazis, the leftover Nazis, uh, you know, who uh, Fritzi von der Schulenburg, for example, who left behind a wife and six children uh, and was, uh, you know, executed uh, for his um, part in the July 20th plot. Um, you know, Charlotte, as she was called, his wife, with these three, six little children, uh, had the most terrible time uh, being, you know, accused as being a, a traitor and, and all that sort of thing and no money and uh, having lost, uh, you know, it, it, that's a love story. That one is a love story. <laughs> I wanted a love story in there as well, you know. Uh, uh, no, they had a very, very, very difficult time. And I, I may add, uh, because uh, the Allies, um, the Brits and the Americans, and the French, I guess, were so determined to be um, anti-communist um, after the war, uh, they didn't have any recognition here either. You know, uh, uh, loads of them, like Julius Leber, my, my sixth, I think, I can't remember how many I've mentioned of my stories now, but Julius Leber was this um, unbelievably brilliant um, member of parliament, Reichstag member for the Social Democrats, you know, uh, and he fought, even though he was in concentration camps twice, every time he came out, he kept his head down for a while, and then he was in the fight again. Um, and Darendorf, who was in one of the concentration camps with him, left a, a record of, we cannot imagine the kind of depravity of some of these concentration camps. 
And Julius Leber is down, I have it in the book, as being at Esterwagen concentration camp, where, where there was a particularly depraved lot. Um, and uh, they were told to build um, sort of small buildings, I mean, miniature buildings, out of shit, human shit. And then Darwendorf, who, you know, was a rather, rather respected um, man uh, who survived, he wrote that Julius Leber was always singled out for the most brutal treatment, beaten up again and again and again. And on this occasion, he was told to eat that shit. You, can't, you, you sort of can't imagine uh, that this is what some human beings can do to some other human beings, but, you know, it happens. And it happened to him. However, out he came, Julius Leber, and off he went uh, into resistance again. Uh, and he knew very well it would mean that he would be executed sooner or later. And, of course, he was, you know. So something you've said earlier is that when you read these stories, you think about what you yourself would have done. Have, have you had any thoughts yourself about whether you'd have been one of the resistors? Yeah, I, I've, I have actually thought about it quite often. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I suppose the answer is I, I rather doubt it. I really rather doubt it. Uh, luckily, I have Swiss relations. I probably would have zipped across to Switzerland rather quick, or to my, or you know, basically um, in England. I mean, <laughs> my dad was English, you know, my mother was Swiss. I'd have tried to get out. I think is what I would have done early on. Um, but if I hadn't, and if I'd been caught and couldn't get out for one reason or another, or um, well, put it this way, I wouldn't have had the courage. I don't think to say I'm not going to leave because I am going to be big time resisting, I doubt. I might have found courage to do little things, uh, you know, um, but I don't think I'd have ever done the big things, no. It took enormous courage and a preparedness to lose your life any day, any day at all. And do you think that by telling these stories, people will get a new view of Germany under Nazism? Well, I hope so. Uh, it's, it's, it's really not about... It. Well, I mean, of course it is about Germany, obviously, but it's not really about that. It's about what happens to people under a terror regime, do you see? And you could apply it in all sorts of places right now uh, and think to yourself, I mean, obviously we know from uh, all the immigrants, they're, they're fleeing. They're fleeing in their droves from the most appalling stuff. Um, so I suppose I'd, I'd hope that people would think not just about what happened in the past, but, you know, what, what, what's going on now and what, once these regimes get going, really. Um, OK, Katrine, I think I've covered all the main questions I had for you. Is there anything else really important that you think I should have asked about? Well, i tell you one more thing I would, I would add, uh, and that is that um, an, a regime like that uh, uses certain tools uh, one is fake news, you know, uh, which is terrifically powerful. So Josef Goebbels was a genius at it. And what he would do is he'd film hysterical crowds sort of cheering and screaming when Hitler was going through uh, the streets of, you know, Berlin or wherever it was. Uh, and, and, you know, I just say to people, why don't you uh, see how many it was? I mean, the population of Germany at the time was about 67 million. Uh, even if it was a million people in the street... Where do you think all the others were? They were hiding in their houses behind the curtains, you know. So, so one tool is fake news, and that was used what with, with the Olympic Games and, and, and whatever else. 
Uh, and another tool was terror, general brutal terror. But the third, and this is the last thing I'd really like to say to you, uh, is that they found alternative systems for everything. So they found an alternative civil service by putting in all their um, SS and people. They found an alternative uh, army. They put in all their people as an alternative. And by 1934, they had an alternative judicial system, which was called the People's Court, the Volksgericht. And that was specially designed for what they called treason. And anyone caught doing a treasonable act, which might be a great big thing like planning an assassination of Hitler, but it might equally be that your neighbor says that every time they knock on your door and you open the door, you do not give the Hitler salute. They have you up in front of the people's court and you are sentenced immediately to, you know, a year in, in a concentration camp. So uh, that's the only other thing I would add. Uh, you, anyone, try and live with that stuff. I, I don't know how you do it. That was Katrin Clay. The Good Germans, Resisting the Nazis, 1933 to 1945, is out now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And do check out historyextra.com for more on life in Nazi Germany. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tomorrow you can hear the latest episode in our Princes in the Tower series. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.